Welcome to the weekly webcast with John Webb, award-winning journalist and currently roving reporter, producer and presenter for Mnet's flagship Carte Blanche, which still goes out, I think, John Webb, on a Sunday night at 7 o'clock. You're absolutely right, uh, Lindsay. Seven o'clock on a Sunday night and uh, repeated at various points after that. Of course it is, but we'll talk about the <laughs> show that's coming up on Sunday later on. But we met first, I think, 2001 as rookies at 702 Talk Radio, as it is now, but then Radio 702 in those days. And things have changed enormously since then in South Africa. The stuff that we were reporting upon then was completely different to what those people are reporting upon today. Or is it that different? Hard to say, I suppose. I mean, I think the political dynamic, if you like, although I hate that word, uh, has changed substantially since uh, you and I were roaming the corridors at uh, 7.02. But I think what has happened is that the the media industry in general has upped its game. I I know there'd be quite a few people who would dispute that. But I think that the teams that have been uh, assembled at the, um, I don't know, legacy media institutions, if you like, uh, are very strong. And I think the level of investment that is being done by those organizations, and I include Eyewitness News amongst those, is very, very good. So I think that, you know, that level of accountability still exists, but it does seem to me that there is an extraordinary mountain of subject matter that uh, the journalists are wading through these days that we didn't necessarily have because, you know, we were dealing with a different place in time and we were dealing with different administrations. Uh, first, the, the Nelson Mandela administration, and then after that, the Mbeki administration. So, you know, times have certainly changed as far as that is concerned. And it does seem to me that there are quite a few more uh, conspiracies to be dealt with than there were during our time. And uh, as I say, a, a huge amount of subject matter to be wading through. The conspiracy theories have sort of manifested themselves in certain people's eyes and in reality as well as fake news because of social media, because of the proliferation of internet-led stories. These reporters that you were referring to have so much more to wade through, again, as you said, and filter. They have to filter these stories. Mm. You know, I'm not entirely sure how I would feel about being a radio reporter, in inverted commas, these days, because even though there was a certain immediacy to radio and an an immediacy to what we were doing, we still had a certain amount of time available to us to digest what we were being told or what we were uncovering, uh, to try and establish as best we could the facts. And then, of course, we were also able to run those by our colleagues back at the newsroom. So you would call up your your desk editor on the day, the sub-editors, or even your news editor, and say, this is what I'm dealing with, what do you think, and this is what I'm thinking of putting out, and then you'd have a, a very often a short discussion around that. But as you say, with the advent of social media, and in particular Twitter, I don't think that that luxury necessarily exists anymore. So what you have to do is make hard and fast decisions very quickly and put that information out, or risk being left behind by your colleagues. I don't think it's necessarily a healthy situation to be in, but uh, you know, the the philosophical complexities aside, just the sort of the mechanics of the job, I think, are much more complex and much more difficult. And I, <laughs> to be frank, Lindsay, I don't know how I would deal with the pressure. Well, you don't, of course, because the immediacy of the 702 newsroom has now gone from your life because you get a story from carte blanche that you have to follow and you fly from one city, European city, whatever city it is, to the other and have a few days, I presume, to put that story together. And it's not that time sensitive. Do you prefer that? I do. I do, Lindsay, because I think it provides you an opportunity to, at the very least, and look, there's a very quick turnaround to what I do as well, but you know, quick is always rel- relative. And as you say, at least I, I do have the, the luxury of a bit of time to, you know, to put the story together and piece it together before it goes out. But 
what it does provide is an opportunity to to speak to more people, to listen to more people, to as best you can immerse yourself in the story that you are are trying to put out, and then hopefully retell those stories in a way that does the subject justice. And that's what I enjoy. I, I don't. I, I feel a little uncomfortable being wrong, and I would hate to respond to a particular news event so quickly that I am wrong some of the time. <laughs> you know, I prefer the luxury of having a little bit more time to digest the facts and, and, and hopefully double-check them so that what I put out is, is, first of all, accurate. But as I say, it's always very important to me, as it is you know, most journalists, to, to accurately reflect the stories of the people that I'm talking to. And I think having a bit more time enables you to do that. And... You know, I've also moved into into a different type of, of storytelling. These days, I, I tell a lot more environmental stories than I used to. I tell a lot more human interest stories than I used to. And I try to stay away as best I can from the hard news stories because I think that terrain is quite fraught at the moment. But, you know, telling the stories in the genre that I'm trying to, I, I think is also a little more interesting because you get to scratch beneath the surface and get to know people, which I don't think is always the case when you're strictly, you know, doing or covering hard news. So you think things like state capture, Cyril Ramaphosa and his almost one year in office, cabinet reshuffles, the EFF, the noisy EFF, the noisy neighbours to the ANC, Pravin Gordon and the people that are pillorying Pravin, that's not your game anymore? Well, you know, as it's, it's just become so toxic, I think, uh, in a lot of respects, uh, Lindsay. And, and that's not to say that the journalists involved in uncovering that aren't doing the important job. Of course they are. And in many respects, far more important a job than I am doing, uh, because they are informing the average South African person on the streets about what exactly, as best they can, is happening in their country. And of course, that's important. But there is so much subterfuge and so much conspiracy. And it is it is weaved together, if you like, with a, a kind of nastiness that. I'm finding quite, A, unusual, uh, and B, quite difficult to come to terms with. Because if you look at Twitter, it's not just politicians fighting with, with journalists. It's journalists fighting with other journalists, politicians fighting with journalists, journalists fighting with politicians, analysts fighting with journalists, analysts fighting with other analysts. It's just, it's become one big free-for-all. So in this endeavor to, to separate the wheat from the chaff and, and try and get to the truth, is an extraordinary amount of collateral damage and reputations are being flung out the windows, uh, you know, as fast as you can count them. And, you know, some of them unjustifiably so. And people are being called extraordinary names in the process. And, and I just think it's a very, as I say, a very toxic environment and, and something which I don't think is always healthy. So I'm glad I'm not at the coalface anymore in that respect, although who knows what lies around the corner. We may eventually, you included, be drawn back into it. Who knows? Twitter's unbelievable. There was a great piece on CNN, about a five-minute feature, where they took certain tweets that had been put out by various high-profile people with lots of followers, and one was something, I think it was an ex-US astronaut, and he quoted Winston Churchill, and he said this, this, and this, and people were up in arms because they said, well, Winston Churchill was actually a racist and this is his history, etc. And on the other hand, other people came out and said, yes, you're quite right, he was a great leader. But it doesn't matter what you put out on Twitter. I could put a tweet out now saying, John Webb's a great bloke. And I would get probably 50-50, uh, John Webb isn't a great bloke. But, <laughs> well, maybe 60-40 in your favour. But you know what I mean? It is very, very dangerous. And you have to, again, mm. filter, just like these youngsters on the desks of the newsrooms these days have to do. 
You do. And, you know, I think you have to be particularly circumspect, even when you, you're sending out a fairly mundane tweet, as you say, you know, often that can be twisted or misrepresented. And that's not to say that other people don't cross the line. Of course they do. There is some awful stuff that is put out on Twitter, which rightly is criticized. But as you said, it becomes a very difficult terrain when you are making what you assume to be a fairly rational and logical statement, and even that is attacked. And how exactly you deal with that, I'm not entirely sure. I think the people who make the best use of Twitter have very thick skins, and they just don't let it get to them. Because it really doesn't matter what your political persuasion or political standpoint is or ideological standpoint, you're going to get flack from somebody. So just being in the arena puts you out there, and and there's very little that you can do to avoid it, unless all you're doing on Twitter is putting out the equivalent of a, a sort of a mundane press release, you know, public information statement, which which doesn't serve a purpose anyway. So at some point, you have to nail your colors to the mast. And when you do, you take flack for that. And I think the people who are best able to to use Twitter to their advantage, you know, really just go along and, and try to ignore and ignore all the noise. Well, it must be an incredibly difficult thing to do. Well, Donald Trump, of course, is the master of ignoring it. And I don't think he consciously ignores it. It's just because he's stupid and he doesn't look at it and he doesn't understand the criticism and just goes on with his life. I think the master of it, and you can love him or hate him, and I'm sort of in between, is Piers Morgan. He puts out things, but then he justifies and he comes up with clever comments. He's the master of mastering the Twitter sphere and his followers and also his detractors. And I think he does that very well. Let's not talk any more about those two people or about Twitter, but let's talk about the fact that both of us have left the shores of South Africa. We need not go into the details of why we did so or where we are. But when you look back and you can look back with a good deal of luxury and say, do you say to yourself, well, I look at South Africa in a different way now because I'm living somewhere else. And what do you think of South Africa? And be very honest here, if you would. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a a huge amount that South Africa gets wrong. Uh, I think politically, there's a huge amount that South Africa gets wrong. And I think there are enormous number of things that South African or South Africa and South Africans can be doing better. But having said that, when you extricate yourself and you look on to the country from a distance, there's also a huge amount that that country gets right. And you find yourself, I mean, I'm in Ireland and I find myself talking to Irish people and very often, in spite of myself, and with the full knowledge that it probably annoys them, <laughs> I say, you know, well, in South Africa, we, we, we do this and we have this approach and we have this amazing banking system and, and it's, you know, it's, it has a level of sophistication which I think you don't have in Ireland. And I cite other examples of that and I say, you know, in spite of all the things that, you know, that, that pulls and drags South Africa backwards, there is an enormous amount that pulls it forward and an enormous amount, I think, that other countries can learn from. So that's the frustration for me is that I'm still in this space, Lindsay, where I very often compare my current situation to the one that I left behind. And I have to say that Ireland isn't always the winner in that comparison. It often is. I mean, it's a safe country. Uh, economically, it's doing well, although I, I believe that the, the, the Irish economy is, is very much built on a mirage. But, I mean, that's a, perhaps a conversation for another time. But very often, South Africa is the winner. It's certainly not the winner when it comes to politics or comparing the politics, and certainly not a winner when it comes to comparing the crime. But in terms of, of what South Africans are able to achieve in spite being perched at the bottom of the African continent, uh, thousands of miles away, I think is really quite extraordinary. And, and as I say, I think a lot of Irish people find me quite tiresome because I, I very often remind them of that. Of course, it doesn't apply to rugby anymore. That is the one area that I don't talk about. But, you know, in terms of, as I say, our banking system, our hospitality industry, our innovation as far as agriculture, the medical sphere is concerned, all of these things, I think we can be immensely proud of. So, 
I think what I'm trying to say is that, you know, having been away for about 10, 10, 11 months, I'm still in a space where I look back very fondly on my time in South Africa. I'm reminded that there are advantages to being where I am at the moment, and I don't want to be too hard on Ireland. But, um, you know, South Africa, I am reminded constantly, is this an extraordinary country, an extraordinary place to be? Yeah, it is, with 28% unemployment, with one of the highest crime levels in the world. There's so much uh, corruption, etc. But it has the... What I like about South Africa is the potential. If someone gets hold of it, it can go forward at a much faster rate than any European country. The one I'm in now, the one that you're in at the moment, i.e. Ireland. It has the potential to just go exponentially forward, but no one's got hold of it yet. That's what I worry about, and I don't think I'm young enough to ever... Um, reap the benefits of that person getting hold of it. Will it be Cyril Ramaphosa? I don't know. Again, looking back, do you think it might be him and the team that he builds around him and the next team that follows on from him? Well, you know, I think this is where the the concern comes in. I mean, firstly, I suppose what we have to admit, and, and maybe this is what you're alluding to, that when we talk about South Africa, very often we're talking about what Tarvon Becky referred to as two different countries. And I would venture to say that there is an enormous section of the population who wouldn't agree that that we are particularly dynamic, given that they are still, you know, below the poverty line and struggle to put one meal on the table, even though it's it's 2018, and you would have thought that things would have changed yeah. more than they have. But but given that that is the case, I think Cyril Ramaphosa, in a vacuum, represents probably the biggest hope that South Africa has had, certainly in the past, you know, since about 2009. So in the past nine, ten years, the problem is, is that the the internal politics of the ANC have become so complex that in order to navigate that, I think you have to make a certain number of compromises. And I think you saw that in the most recent cabinet reshuffle. I think he's keeping a number of ministers on that he would prefer to be rid of as a compromise with an eye towards what might happen in the elections next year. And, you know, I don't think that benefits anybody except the ANC and, you know, indirectly the, the economic freedom fighters. So so that has been a disappointment for me. The fact that you're the man at the helm, the person at the helm, has to navigate these very complex waters before sort of readying the, the South African ship, if you like. You know, he has to think about the smaller vessels before he can concentrate on the larger ones. And I think that's unfortunate because I think the price for that, you know, could be particularly damaging for South Africa. So maybe his attitude will change next year. Maybe he will be emboldened by a successful election campaign by the ANC and start to make more substantive personnel changes. And then who knows where the future might lead. But at the moment, I think he has a very split national executive committee that is certainly clear from some of the comments you see around land expressed on Twitter and and I think he has to navigate those waters. He has to keep the ANC Women's League on side. He has to keep the Youth League on side, although they're becoming a bit of a non-entity. And, of course, the alliance partners, too. So it's so very, very difficult. And I think, you know, Lindsay, if you want an example of, of a pretty good demonstration of that, I think you need, you need to look at South African Airways. Do I have to? And, and the fact that every... <laughs> well, I, I think it's perhaps a microcosm because everybody knows the first step that you need to take to start rectifying South African Airways. And the first thing that you need to do is sadly reduce the workforce. Now, I know that plans are afoot to sort of subcontract about 120-odd pilots to other airlines over the next five years. So that'll take care of one section of the of the staff complement. But, 
you know, you need to cut elsewhere, if indeed that is going to be your approach to sort of prune to grow, to cut to grow. But you know as well as I do that that would be an incredibly difficult decision to, to make in 2018, given that there is a, an election next year. So it's a, it's a decision that is unlikely to happen. And, you know, again, the, the ultimate price is paid by the taxpayer. who has to keep, uh, you know, donating fortunes. Billions to, and to billions every flow. single so year. Every budget we get, they say we're going to give more to South African Airways, like it's some sort of prized sovereign asset that we need. It's not strategic at all. Uh, there's a couple mm. of routes that need to be kept going that wouldn't be profitable if a private if a private company came in or another company came in and took 50% or 51%, whatever it is. But I don't understand the South African Airways story, but other people will say that your example is wrong. The best example is Eskom and how to fix that. I mean, SAA is just a little pimple on the bottom of Eskom, which is unbelievable. The hundreds of billions that are involved here is something that we can't even comprehend, or rather we can't cover in the scope of this interview. But Eskom is the first one. SAA? I don't know. There's too many other airlines. We mustn't worry too much about SAA, I don't think. No, of course, of course. But, it, you know, it does act as a microcosm in, in some ways. It does speak to the, the politics in some ways of South Africa in as much as people are not prepared to take the, the tough decisions because of the political consequences down the line. Mm. So if it doesn't get fixed, and, and there are many people who say that it can't be, one of the major contributors to that will be the fact that, you know, the people who ultimately bear responsibility weren't prepared to make the tough decisions that would make them unpopular, and potentially that they would pay the price of the polls. So I think that is where South Africa finds itself currently. And I think Sora Ramaphosa has an enormous job on his hands to try and silence those voices and put people in place that will allow him to pursue, I think, the mandate that he ultimately has in mind. Uh, but then again, you know, there are many commentators who are saying, actually, you're giving him too much credit. And, and then, in fact, mm. he's not potentially the politician that uh, that many people believe he is. And that, in fact, he, you know, he's, he's not as strong as people are, are, are suggesting he might be. And he doesn't have the vision that people say that he might be. And he is a bit more populist than people suggest he, he, he is. So uh, there is that counter-argument yeah, now I understand, John, why you are an environmental reporter rather than a political reporter, because it's just amazing. Just tell us about a couple of the stories that you've been covering on Carte Blanche in the last few months and the ones you've really enjoyed, and also look forward to this Sunday, if you would. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been fascinating shooting stories in Europe. Probably the one that, that gave me the biggest sense of achievement was a story I did on climate change. I went to the, the far north of Sweden, about 150 kilometres inside the Arctic Circle to do a story on the thawing of the permafrost, which should be a concern to a huge many people, mm. although apparently not to Donald Trump. Mm. Um, and, uh, and that was fascinating. And it, it was an environment that was so alien to me that I think that probably added to the, the, the texture for me. So that was, that was a wonderful story. And beyond that, I've done stories on passenger drones. I've done a story recently in Ireland on the impact of the anti-malaria drug Larium, which is, is quite controversial in the Irish military, and there's a big legal battle brewing there. So uh, I'm almost reluctant to admit it, but I did do a story on, on South African Airways too and what it might learn from the low-cost airline industry in Europe. So it's, it's just been a fascinating array, and, and I'm really looking forward to sinking my teeth into some others next year. I'd really like to do a story on palm oil because that's a, a real a hot topic at the moment, uh, and I would love to get out to Southeast Asia to, to do a story on that. Uh, so that's something that is on my radar. Uh, as far as this Sunday is concerned, it's a nice mix, as they say in the industry. There's a, there's a focus on, on uh, people who have fought back in hijackings. Uh, there's another story on 
safety standards in South African vehicles and whether or not the standards that apply in Europe are necessarily applied in South Africa and the impact of that being, of course, that South African vehicles aren't necessarily as safe as they would be in Europe because the standards are different. So that's another story that's coming up. So a a nice mix of stories, and I'm sure it's going to be a a fascinating uh, one hour of programming on Sunday. We'll be watching it at 7 o'clock, as always, on Mnet, the flagship, carte blanche. As we finish this first discussion, this first webcast, weekly webcast with John Webb, who's the roving reporter and producer and presenter of carte blanche, we have to talk about rugby because you are currently in the country that is probably top of the world because you beat the All Blacks, or rather your home country beat the All Blacks (coughs) in spectacular fashion. I must admit, that I'm, I'm a football supporter, but that was an amazing game. Yeah, it really was. It was uh, it was 80 minutes of, of pulsating rugby. Really fantastic to watch. And uh, as you say, Ireland probably the number one side in the world at the moment, much to the delight of my wife. And really, they have no right to be because it's such a small country. It has such a small rugby playing population. Rugby here competes with the, the Gaelic sports. It competes with soccer. Football. Uh, football, I beg your pardon. Although, of course, they call it soccer here because there's Gaelic football, which is... Uh, a different sport entirely and not one that I've ever been able to figure out. I don't think but they have either, football. which is why it's never no, taken no, on. But exactly. anyway, I don't care what they call it. it. It's still football. Sorry, John. As they go on. along. Yeah, so, so really they, they and you know, they, they pick from four provincial teams, essentially. So, so the fact that they are able to take on and beat New Zealand and, and regularly beat the other you know, rugby superpowers is really quite a, an astonishing achievement. And of course, there are also other complexities, like, for example, it's the only sport where the Republic plays with, uh, alongside players from the North, mm. which uh, has, been, you know, has built a bridge as far as that is concerned. So it's a lovely story. And, and the fact that they play with such passion and they play with such precision and it's such beautiful rugby to watch, I think is a real credit to them. And they've done amazingly well. And I think they have to be one of the favourites for the World Cup next year. John Webb, thanks so much for your time.